The Athletic. shows to me how exceptionally well Arsenal have done to take it this deep into the season to be honest because City just look like a team with with no flaws There cannot be a more exciting group of young players that a, that a head coach should come in and work with in world football right now Second half was just yeah capitulation really wasn't it quite clearly down this Leicester City game away on, on, on Monday is absolutely huge Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Dan Bardell and this is the Weekend Preview. I'm joined by George Ellick, Bet365, Steve Freeth and Tim Spears. As Man City shoot down the Gunners' title chances, can City complete the job on their way to a possible treble? Across Manchester, United welcome Aston Villa as Unai Emery side look to open up the race for Champions League qualification. And down at the bottom, Everton head to Leicester and Leeds head to Bournemouth as the battle for survival intensifies. That's all to come here on the Weekend Preview. What a touch from Foden. Holland! 49 and counting for this outstanding marksman. Of course, there was a massive game midweek as the title race really, really intensified. This weekend, Fulham are playing Manchester City Sunday at 2 o'clock. And weirdly, Arsenal are playing Chelsea Tuesday at 8 o'clock. George, we waited and waited for the title showdown at the Etihad. Did it live up to expectation? And and can Arsenal recover from that? Because it really was quite humbling in the end. It definitely didn't live up to expectation purely in terms of being a contest between the two best sides in the in the in the country this season. In terms of being a title showdown, it was incredibly one-sided. What I would say though, and this isn't obviously what I was hoping to happen, sitting down as a neutral to watch the game, was I and and you know, a lot of people over the last five or six years have leveled accusations that, that of City of being boring and not enjoying watching them play. I mean I thought that especially that first half performance was was incredibly enjoyable to watch. You know, Aaron Ramsdale kept the scoreline down in that first half. I thought Kevin De Bruyne's goal to open the scoring was, you know, one of the many defining moments of what has been one of the best individual Premier League careers that we've seen. The performance from Haaland, you know, eventually he got his goal right at the death. Um, but I thought it was the best all-around display I've seen from him, uh, both in terms of chance creation. You know, he it was a brilliant touch and, and ball, but a hold-up play for the first goal. I think he really showed that he's more than just a goal scorer, which when you consider how many goals he scores is a pretty terrifying prospect. And, and even, you know, whilst Ram, Ramsdale foiled him a couple of times, the, the build-up play, his running in behind, which we've seen all season, his movement in the box, is just unbelievable to, to watch. Uh, and there wasn't really a, a poor performer out there for City. It was a dominant performance. It was a performance that shows that they are going to be the rightful winners of the Premier League. I, I personally now cannot really see a way back for, for Arsenal back into this title race. It would be it would be City really taking their eye off the ball um, around the, the Real Madrid games uh, for that to happen. It seems incredibly unlikely to in my mind. The only thing I guess that is maybe a shred of hope is, is we saw in the Leicester game a couple of weeks ago where, where City were dominant once they went clear Pep shuffled his pack very early and, and took off Rodri, took off De Bruyne, took off Grealish and very nearly let uh, Leicester back into that game, which you know, which shows I think he is going to prioritise massively and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see a lot of rotation in the next couple of weeks. The issue is, is that City's strength and depth is, is scary. So um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying stick a fork in this one, but it feels pretty unlikely that this won't be, won't be done. I mean, as if Haaland wasn't scary enough, he's now added a dropping deep and linking up to his to, to his armoury. I mean, it's absolutely frightening. I, I know it took him a while to score, but it was absolutely frightening the way he played midweek. He tormented Arsenal all evening. Steve, what's that done for the title race odds? I know there's a few markets around point gaps and, and treble chances as well. Yeah, we actually bet the outright in play during that Manchester City game, just in the hope it would be quite competitive, that it would be topsy-turvy and... It's a bit of a damn squib, really, from our from our point of view, and and the title race looks exactly like that. Dan, uh, Manchester City went from two to nine for the title to one to fourteen currently, 
with Arsenal on the drift, as you'd expect, from 130 out to 8-1. to one. And even though Arsenal are still top of the Premier League, we have got a market on Manchester City's winning distance. And admittedly, a, a, a double-figure winning margin like they did in 2021 and, 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 and 2018, I think it was. They're 25-1 to one to win the title by 10 points or more. So I think we think it's going to be around the four to six point mark because they are 10 to 11 to do that. As regards to their their remaining games, we're only eleven to two about them winning all their remaining games, as, as George has alluded to. Really, I know they want to keep the foot on the gas, but they might be prioritising that that Real Madrid game. And of course, talking about Real Madrid, Manchester City are only six to five now to win that treble. And Manchester United fans are all I've got fingers crossed. They get everything crossed that Manchester City do not win that treble this season. Does anyone think that they will win the treble? Yeah. You do. I do. Tim? Yes. You all think it. Yeah, it just feels right. It? it feels like everything's coming together. I know isn't you it? think Madrid will probably beat them, don't you, over the two legs in, in the Champions League? Right. I think Real Madrid just come alive in the Champions League. I just And they've got the psychological thing of having done it last season against Manchester City. So that First leg? First leg being it? I'd like, I'd like a few handicaps on the aggregate score. <laughs> As you can imagine, I, I could see City. City are favourites to win in, in yeah, you know, yeah. the first leg. Doesn't surprise me. So that's how that's how strong they are. They're long odds on to qualify in this. And Manchester uh, and Real Madrid clearly have the history in this in this competition. It just feels like this is their time, and they're just steamrolling everybody. It's all coming together just at the right time for once. Previously, they've failed. Whether what? Of course, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about bottling and Arsenal. I know that's a that's a word that we don't talk about on this pod, but. Um, this is Manchester City's time, and I do think they, they are extremely machine-like at the moment. Tim, is this the most complete Man City side that we've seen under Pep? Even going direct when they needed to the other night, even not really needing fullbacks at uh, most times as well. There's just so much this Manchester City side. He just, just when you think he might have a problem, he just reinvents everything and comes up with a new plan. Uh, yeah, I I do agree with that. I mean, like George says, they're quite fun to watch now. That that Bayern Munich game was great a few weeks ago at home when they didn't have as much possession as Bayern. You know, we don't really see that from Pep's teams. I mean, I lo- I loved them getting it in the mixer. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, John Stones going back to his Barnsley days with you know long balls up to the big man, and um, it's just another sign of their sort of evolution this season. I'm not sure Arsenal have, have evolved as much as City have tactically during the campaign. And, you know, I've seen a lot of chat this week about City's dominance of the league now that it's looking like what would be potentially a third consecutive title or, you know, and City's money directly related to that. But it's Pep, isn't it? Let's be honest. He's, he's the one that makes it happen. He's, this was another example of his, of his tactical genius, you know, completely outsmarted Arteta, beat the Arsenal press, cut through them centrally. Um, it's fantastic. And it's rare to see two title contenders who look so far apart, you know, in, in one match. It could have been six or seven, to be honest. And it's the second time, you know, they've beaten them convincingly in, in, in a couple of months. So, um, I think they're probably the best team in the world right now. And I can't imagine anyone would have beaten them on Wednesday night, you know, and, and uh, it shows to me how exceptionally well Arsenal have done to take it this deep into the season, to be honest, because City just looked like a team with, with no flaws. Yeah, Arsenal are still technically ahead in the title race. Of course, they've got the points on the board, which is one of those cliches in football. You'd rather have the points on the board. But I think in this case, George, that's probably not true because it doesn't feel like City are going to slip. And just on the that big game on, on Wednesday, we've been waiting for it for what feels like, like months. But when it has come round, it's kind of come round at the wrong time for Arsenal, hasn't it? Because they fell away in recent weeks. Yeah, it definitely has. You know, And when you mentioned there, Arsenal still ahead, I mean... When you hear the old cliche rolled out, the league table doesn't lie. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's coming at a bad time. I, I think the, you know, maybe I've changed my opinion since we spoke about it a week ago, but the, you know, the Saliba injury is, has obviously been been huge. I think in basically every every facet of Arsenal's play, like they have been leaking goals. Even in games they've been winning um, since he's been since he's been out, I felt really happy in quite like a condescending way for Rob Holding to, to get his goal because I think it's been a pretty difficult couple of weeks for him and it was a pretty difficult hour or, or 70 minutes for him before he did where you know he's he's not Saliba um I think his uh limitations have been exposed to on on the highest possible stage you know on the biggest possible stage I, I see what you're saying I, I feel a little bit sorry for him as, as well because he's coming two seasons running at the pivotal point of the season having not played loads of football and he's kind of been found out a little bit hasn't he that that drop off he's quite big unfortunately and it's, it's always going to be I mean you, you are incredibly fortunate 
or very rich if you're going to have you know second third choice center backs who are going to be of the same level as your as, as your as your you know your, your top one or two we see it fairly consistently um and as you say when you when you're out of the side and you haven't played much football and you have to be brought in for a game like this or, or you know this run of games which has been Arsenal trying to secure their first Premier League title for however long uh, it's you know it's it's a pretty thankless task, um, but there's no denying. I mean, even though kind of making excuses for him, he's not as good as Saliba in in or out of possession or as a defender. And you know, I think you could point to a couple of moments in that first half. He made one unbelievable tackle, to be fair, on Grealish as he as he kind of was scampering clear down the left hand side. But in my mind, it's it's very hard not to think that if William Saliba had stayed fit, that. Arsenal wouldn't have a few more points on the board from prior to the City game and that maybe this game on Wednesday night would have been a bit closer at least. You sound about teams being fortunate in terms of depth. Man City have got five incredible centre-backs, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's not, not much difference between any, any, any of those five. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, it's Squad depth is what it's come down to at, at the end for Arsenal, I think, and that's a labour injury. They'll probably look at that as a, a sliding doors moment in, in the season. Steve, Arsenal have got to wait until Tuesday to play Chelsea. Apparently, this is due to it was going to be a Saturday 3pm kickoff, but Tim Spears would have been so cross with that they've moved it to Tuesday. Surely, though, they've got to end their wait for a win with that one. Yeah, I mean, Arsenal, Dan, were, were odds on for the title just a, just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, really. And it's like we've talked about, it's it's unravelled. And two in the look for them away at Liverpool, that'd have been about one to two for the title and in a clearly a different position, but um, this fixture, historically, I mean, the last four games have been won by the by the away side as well. So, would I be back in Arsenal at four to six to win this game? I'm not sure I would. Would I be back in Chelsea at four to one to win the game? Oh, I really don't know. This time, last season, this fixture, Chelsea were odds on to win at the Emirates. It was at the start of last season. The Arsenal defence that day in goal was Leno, Cedric Suarez, Pablo, Holding and Tierney were the with about four. Lukaku and Rhys James got on the score sheet. It looked like it was going to be a brilliant season for Chelsea. I think they'll take a result like that, wouldn't they, um, on Tuesday night. But uh, Chelsea at four to one, I could be tempted by that, you know. I mean, they've finished third and spent 600 million. And now they're they're 11th. And stuck in 11th, been 11th for weeks. And odds on to finish in the bottom half. I mean, it looks an absolute no chance that ever's going to happen for Chelsea in recent years. And lo and behold, it's, it's happened. This whole like Lampard interim manager thing, is just, and, and this isn't hindsight because I think we all knew it at the time. And I know that Chelsea fans wanted to do it at the end of Graham Potter for a long time before he was sacked. But we've we've kind of gone into this position now where if you think back, I don't know, 10, 15 years, you wouldn't see clubs effectively sacking a manager for the sake of sacking them without any contingency plan or idea of what you're going to do next. It would always be an attempt to improve. This this notion now, and it's because we, you know we live in a world, I guess, where fans expect managers to get sacked for this perceived lack of success. It's completely mindless. Like you are, you've identified a manager in Graham Potter, Graham Potter, who you think at the time is the best possible candidate for you to appoint. Six months later, you're going back and you're appointing somebody who you, the club, t- like made a decision two years before, he wasn't the person to do it. it. It doesn't make any sense. Like what's happened to the to the time where people used to recruit short term managers? You know, Chelsea were the best at it. Look at what happened with Chelsea under Goose Hiddink, for example. I, I don't understand why big clubs are in a position now where they believe putting in a stopgap manager who has nothing on their CV to suggest that they're capable of doing the job is better than even just keeping, you know, not paying off a, a massive sum in the middle of the season and waiting until the summer. Like when Chelsea replaced Potter, they were in the Champions League still. I just don't understand how these decisions are made as if they are anything more than just a PR exercise. And, you know, it, is it a surprise that Chelsea got even worse since Lampard came in? No, not to anyone who's been paying attention. It's the cliche non-football people, is it making business, being successful in business, making these football decisions, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, he's a safe pair of hands. That's the, but he's, that's not, the but he's not a safe I mean, pair of hands. I know, I could, I could have been a safer pair of hands as Frank Lampard because I would have lost every game as a, as a manager as well. It, it, it is bizarre, I completely understand what you're saying. And next, we're going to jump onto the managerial merry-go-round and discuss the European contenders. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Right, we're back and we're now going to look at the European football contenders. This weekend, we've got Manchester United v Aston Villa and Newcastle v Southampton Sunday at 2 o'clock and Liverpool v Tottenham Sunday at 4.30. Tim, Manchester United welcome European hopefuls Aston Villa to Old Trafford, having blown a 2-0 lead at Tottenham on Thursday night. Is there a slight opening for the chasing pack to catch them? I don't know about that, but they are they are stuttering. I mean, it's been it's been a couple of weeks of sort of poor results now, which you can date back to when they were two 0 up against Sevilla and then blew that two 0 lead, and then obviously lost the second leg three 0 You know, in disastrous and hapless circumstances, nil nil against Brighton. Obviously, they went through on penalties in the FA Cup uh, last weekend, but you know, an unconvincing performance. And then um, and then last night somehow contrived to to blow a two 0 lead against a team with, you know, the sort of the lowest confidence level in the league pretty much right now. So, yeah, I, th- I think we said last week, you know, they've they've had some bad moments this season before and always bounced back, but the difference at the moment is injuries and, okay, Lindelof... They look tired. They do look tired. It's been a long season and they've been in four competitions, you know, until until last week. So, um, yeah, Lindelof and Shaw are doing a great job at centre-half, but otherwise they're just a bit stretched and there are issues with... Build-up play, obviously, uh, you know, playing out with De Gea has caused problems in recent weeks. Casemiro's had a dip from his early season form. Still over-reliant on Rashford for goals. No one else is chipping in, you know, regularly. So, yeah, there are just a few problems combining. I mean, you know, they're, they're still haven't, they've still barely lost a game in recent weeks, apart from that severe one. So, I don't think they can be caught, purely because uh, they've got a couple of games in hand and they've got some fantastic fixtures. They've got a really good run in. So you'd expect, even if they lost this game, which I wouldn't be surprised given the form of the two teams, and it should be a really good game actually, even if they lost this game, I, st- I still think the maximum Villa can get to is uh, 69 points. And Man United are already on 60, but they currently have seven games left and Villa currently had five games left. So mathematically and with the fixtures United have got, I would say they can't be caught. Man United's last five, uh, West Ham, Wolves, Bournemouth, Chelsea... And Fulham. So after Villa and Brighton, yeah, they've got they've got a decent run. Steve, how does the picture for the odds look for top four? Has anything changed based on last night? Looks done, Dan. I mean, Newcastle were four to eleven for the top four ten days ago. They're one to fourteen now. So fantastic for them. I see Champions League football looks like it. I'd, I'd be that'd be close to single figures next season for the for the Premier League title. So they've obviously come on leaps and bounds. Uh, Manchester United are one to ten. So paid out again on Manchester United in pre-game last night, of course, when they were 2 0 up. So that was another um, bit of a kick in the teeth, really. Uh, Liverpool are five to one. I know they've won the last three, scored a lot of goals, and got three games at Anfield coming, but they've got a lot to do. Brighton, let's see how they react after that defeat against Forest. They're eighteen to one. Spurs are twenty to one. And I'm not ever going to mention the side who are next in the betting at 33s. George, Aston Villa. They could go within three points of Manchester United. The reverse fixture was, of course, Emery's first in charge and Aston Villa won 3-1. The turnaround has been gargantuan. Yeah, it really has been. If you look at the game against Fulham in midweek, the stats are unbelievable. Where you know Villa took the lead after 21 minutes through Tyrone Mings. And, and normally, like especially in the Premier League, where the gap between sides outside the kind of big six is generally... Not particularly large. You look at how Fulham have done this season generally. You'd anticipate game state would dictate that the other opposite side would, would come back into it. Like this is, um, you know, I don't think I've ever really seen this before, where Fulham had one shot in the game, and that, that shot was within the first within, thirty seconds. It was within the, th- the first thirty seconds. Fulham were Fulham were behind in this game for s- over seventy minutes plus added time, and couldn't muster a single shot at all. Not a block shot, nothing. So for for Villa to see out a game like that in my mind, is is kind of as impressive as, as any scoreline you're ever going to have. But that means you're just in total control of the game. You know, you're in total control of out of possession, in possession. They they had 14 uh, opportunities themselves, so they were, they continued to create. Like I, you know, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that, you know, the, the XG data suggested that the Villa were overperforming a little bit. And, and I do think it would be unfair on Unai Emery to expect him to continue the points per game rate that he's had since coming in, which would put Villa as a, a Champions League potential team next season. But it is unbelievable what he's done. And, you know, often I think manager profiles suit certain clubs. And I think there are definitely similarities in terms of stature and size 
with the clubs that Unai Emery was so successful with in Spain and Aston Villa, where you've got a big club who maybe haven't um, had the, the best time of it recently, but are never going to be the size of the likes of, in terms of expectation in, in the next immediate future, the likes of Manchester City and Manchester United and the rest of it, but still feel like they have a deserve a place on the European stage. And, you know, the good news for Villa is if they do sneak into the Europa League, well, they've got the best manager possible in charge of them to try and take them on a on a, on a hell of a journey in there too. So, yeah, it's it's one of the stories of the season and I'm really hopeful and really intrigued to, to see how it goes next season. And, you know, Dan, given that you watch them every game, how confident are you that if you do get there, this is a, a sustainable run that can see you continue to be a force at the top end of the Premier League table? It feels like Villa are changing how they do things behind the scenes in terms of Emery's being given complete control and I'm... I'm all for that. Usually I'd be a bit mm, not sure about giving mm. the manager complete free reign because then what happens if he leaves? But Unai Emery is that good and has done that well since he's come in that, that I'm all for it. And at the moment, I think Villa will get Villa will get Europe. You know, seventh will get will get Conference League. I would back Villa to finish at least seventh at, at the moment. They've, they've still got to play Spurs and Liverpool as well as Manchester United on Sunday in the final five games. It's you know, it's kind of in their own hands getting to play those teams around Brighton on the last day as well. So it does feel like Villa have got the momentum and against Fulham on on, on Tuesday night, once they went 1-0 up, it did feel very much like they were playing in first, second gear and just conserving energy for, for Sunday against Manchester United. And when I think how tired Manchester United looked last night, I actually think Villa will go to Old Trafford and win as well. So it is really, really exciting times. But I can't speak highly enough of Ernie Emery. Already he's making a case for being the best manager I've ever seen at Villa Park in my lifetime. Steve, what are the odds of Villa staying unbeaten for the rest of the season? You'll, you'll love this segment, of course. Let's rattle through it, Dan, shall we? Um, they are tough games, as you, as you mentioned there. You didn't mention Wolves at the Custard Bowl. You've got to go to the Custard Bowl, Dan. That's going to be a tough game. I, mean, I don't know if Tim Spears will uh Well, if you manipulate the league table, um, Wolves, actually... are, Wolves are sixth in many, many respects at the moment. Uh, well, as you know, in our group chat, Tim Spears is doing his very best to manipulate any table he can get his hands on to make sure that Wolves should be challenging for European football. But I'm sure he'll have his say shortly. Just going back to Villa, they're 10-1 to one to, um, to go unbeaten over these last games. And I'm actually going to Old Trafford on on Sunday, and it's a, it's it's a game I'm uh, I'm game I'm looking forward to. 1954, yes, when I was a lad, the last time you did mm. the league double over Manchester United, Unai Emery comes in with Aston Villa at seven to two for relegation. You cannot believe that you were that sure for relegation. Maybe a top half challenge was probably the best you could possibly uh, hope for at best. Now you've gone ten games unbeaten, seven to two to finish in the top six, uh, 33-1-ish, to one-ish, I think, to finish in the top four, having been 500-1 to one not so long ago. Please, God, tell me it's not going to happen. I mean, on that 1954 record, he has extinguished many records so far since, since he came in. And Villa only conceded two goals from open play in 10 games as well, three in, in total. Absolutely ridiculous things that are happening at Villa Park at the moment. Tim, let's move on to Newcastle. Ten goals in two games since they lost to Villa against Spurs and Everton. We've spoken about how Eddie Howe's got the most out of the squad previously. If they secure Champions League football for next season, it's going to be difficult for them to, to strengthen in, in some... Not difficult because they've obviously got the money, but... I read the interview with uh, on the on the Athletic with with, with Sean Longstaff and looked at the comments and kind of people were saying, "Oh, it's going to be sad if we have to replace these players who've done so well for us this season. That they're all heroes." But I don't really see much weakness in that Newcastle side at, at the moment. Where would you say that they would strengthen when they qualify for Champions League? Uh, it's a really good question, Dan. I mean, on paper, I think you'd say at the start of the season just a general lift in quality in every area, but then. You look at Jacob Murphy and what he's doing right now and scoring worldies, you know, the guy who used to be on loan at Sheffield Wednesday, or was he at West Brom as well? Poor lad. Um, he was. Yeah, he um, was. Yeah. And then Sean Longstaff, you know, almost sort of joining Everton last season. I think they bid £1 million for him, you know, which I know he's out of contract, but still. You know, you look at that 11 last night, it's not a top four team, is it? It's no. it's Matt Target, it's Longstaff, it's it's Almiron, who used to be a joke figure. You know, it's Callum Wilson, who's a good striker, but you wouldn't necessarily say definitely a top four striker. It's Joe Linton, who used to be a joke figure. So on paper, they're, they're mid-table at best, really, and yet they are playing like a top four team. It's not... It's not a fluke. It's not Everton 2004-05, when they sort of went in on, on minus goal difference in the top four. 
under David Marcus Moyes. Ben's up front. <laughs> yeah, I think they scored like 40 odd goals that season and sort of scraped in, but it's not that. You know, they're playing um, with so much sort of confidence and, and style. I mean, Isaac epitomizing that last night with that insane run. I mean, uh, it's so rare to see, to see something in the Premier League that you maybe sort of haven't seen before, but I've never seen a player actually do what he did. It was it was absolutely incredible. So yeah, I don't know, Dan. I mean, I guess I guess like as you sort of hinted, really, it's more the type of players. You know, are they gonna are they gonna push the money plunger and do the Man City Chelsea style spending that we that we sort of expect? I hope not. I hope they continue with this sort of slowly, slowly does it approach because I think that will help their team spirit. That'll help Eddie Howe as well because he, I don't think he'd want to be confronted with a load of egos in the way that, you know, or unmanageable players or like, like in the style that Frank Lampard and Graham Potter have had to put it with maybe at Chelsea this season. I'm not sure that would suit Eddie Howe. So, um, I think it's more, it's more how they do it and they've done it really well so far. I think they'd like to move Gamarish forward into a number eight position, wouldn't they? He's played as a six virtually the whole season. I mean, that, that's not great for Sean Longstaff after I've just said, after what I've just said, but kind of get the feeling that they could get a, a genuine number six in a move, Gamarish forward, especially for like European big Champions League games. That that would probably take them on to, to the next level a, a little bit. That's going to be the big area, probably is in is in midfield. That's where, apart from Bruno, they do lack sometimes a bit of quality to to unlock defenses and. Next season's obviously going to be much more challenging. Second time around, they'll have Champions League football as well. Yeah, I think you're right, Dan. That's probably that's probably one of, one of the key areas. But you, you can look at any area of the pitch in terms of upgrading, in terms of quality. It's just whether they want to push push that plunger and really go for it. Undoubtedly, those players will be heroes to the to the Newcastle fan base for for years to come, many decades to come as well, because they've they've been absolutely incredible. And Eddie Howe has done a, an amazing job as as well at Newcastle. I still don't actually think he's getting as much credit, even though he is getting a lot of credit that than he deserves. Elsewhere in the hunt for European football, Liverpool made it three wins in a row with a 2-1 win at West Ham on Wednesday night. Key to that upturn has been Jurgen Klopp shaking things up tactically, with Curtis Jones recently coming into what had been an underperforming midfield. And over on the Athletic's dedicated Liverpool podcast, Walk On, Kiever O'Neill has explained the impact he's had for the Reds. He just seems like in such a good place. We speak about Trent a lot, and now you know there's another scouser in the team. And you couldn't imagine Liverpool starting the next game without him. That's where he's put himself now, you know, and there's someone on the sidelines called Thiago and he's keeping him out, which, you know, speaks for how well Curtis Jones has played in the in the past few games. And I think in terms of going forward, this is kind of what you felt like he needed to do. There was going to be a lot of question marks over would he go on loan next season or even move on from Liverpool eventually. I don't think those question marks are quite as prominent now, are they? And people aren't really asking them because he's just worked his way back into the team and is answering that main question, which has come from Klopp a lot of the time, is that consistency. He's showing that now and I think that's that bodes so well, especially when it does feel like a, a positive time for Curtis Jones going forward that he can be involved because he's he's not going to be out of the team now. You wouldn't imagine the way he's playing. So why can't he do that for a whole season? I think that's, that'll be his next challenge. You know, if he's able to start the next season for Liverpool and finish it as, you know, however many appearances he can get. Really good player, Curtis Jones. I've, I've been impressed with him in recent weeks. George, as we've said, it's three wins in a row for Liverpool with Jurgen Klopp tweaking their tactical setup in recent games. It's interesting with the whole Trent thing. You know, there's no denying that he's playing very well and, and certainly in possession. And in terms of being an attacking force, it's been a, a revelation in terms of what they're able to, to do. But defensively, it does cause me some concern you know in this good run in the last what is it four games where they've uh, they drew two all against Arsenal basically since being 2-0 uh, down against Arsenal they've 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 won that game 2-0 from there and then have won the next three but they've conceded seven goals in those four games like I, I think there is Trent was never the best or isn't the best defensively as a right back as we know but when he moves inside you know there was still the case of him being a physical body on that right hand side and when he comes inside there it does seem to be a bit of a gaping hole down that right hand channel which people can which teams can expose well, you say that but I'll, I, it's something to interrupt Sorry. you it, admittedly I only saw the highlights and I'll caveat this by saying I, I love Jurgen Klopp is it that clever because 
there was one period where West Ham broke and Jordan Henderson obviously is the natural one to go mm. out and cover Trent, but then you're putting him in an area that's really, really uncomfortable exactly. for him. So is it not better to just play Trent in, in midfield? Yeah, but I mean, the other thing to, to, to obviously remember is that when you have uh, an attacking fullback, it is Henderson's job always to shuffle in when they're caught up the pitch rather than inside. I mean, it, I think when you have a... a, a basically a fullback playing as an inverted fullback you need to be incredibly tidy in possession you cannot be caught on the ball um, high and that's what City are just unbelievable at you never really see it when, when City's fullbacks come inside you never really see them being caught high and having to, to backtrack I'm not sure Liverpool are quite there yet as is shown by the fact that even though they're winning games defensively they still aren't looking particularly solid so yeah in, in my mind I kind of think just just play Trent at a centre midfield you know I think he'd have a great future there I think I don't think you'd lose a great amount. I think the way that Liverpool play, he can still find himself on that wide right hand side, um, and you need someone to step up to fill in that void and go out and sign a, a quality right back. Um, it's my take on it. I I, I generally think we are, we get way too caught up in the binary nature of, of positions anyway, and, and judging players as being a natural this or a natural that. When actually, you know, Trent Alexander Arnold has the has the tools to play as, as an incredibly effective attacking right back as we've seen in the past maybe now he's best suited being a being a central midfielder Tim as for Spurs they rallied from 2-0 down on Thursday night against Manchester United what do you think of their chances at Anfield could another refund be on the cards I didn't mind that I've seen people getting given somehow giving Spurs a bit of stick for giving their fans uh, money back after last week I thought it's just a nice gesture after a, a, a truly horrific day um I mean, you look at that. It was a strange game last night. They they looked like the Spurs of recent weeks in the first half and then a really impressive second half comeback. To come from where they were at earlier in the week, I mean, that Newcastle game, I think Eric Dyer said it was his worst experience in football. Christian Stellini said it was the worst 20 minutes he'd ever seen from any team. And then you go 2-0 down at home and the crowd have turned already and they're protesting against the owners and they're booing the team off. To come from 2-0 down against a good team in Manchester United, it was, it was really impressive actually. Ryan Mason's very clearly had a positive impact in a short space of time. And obviously whatever he said at half time really worked because they were a different team in the second half. So to go from that utter humiliation and they have, they have, everyone's been laughing at them this week. You know, they, they are a joke club at the moment. They were pathetic. They didn't even try at Newcastle, a lot of them. So to go from that to what, where they were at last night is, is, is promising because it looked like they were just in complete free fall and, and would barely even finish in the, in, in sort of top seven, eight here. Whereas the fighting spirit they showed under Mason's second half suggests that they can still clinch a European place. Whether that's of any real use to them, I don't know. But um, he is sort of limited in what he can do, Dan, because obviously he can't play. He can't play a back four. I think that was very, that was proven very quickly last week. He has got certain players out. He's got Bentancur out, Basuma's out, Kulisevsky's form's been poor. You can't even drop Perisic because Sessegnon, Sessegnon and Davis are both out at left back. So yeah. And then you've got players who just who just aren't informed. I mean, Son, I know he scored the equaliser last night, but he did his best to miss it. And he just doesn't look like he's got any confidence in front of goal whatsoever, you know, as witnessed by his earlier miss. So, But what they do have is Kane, who again last night was just remarkable. I mean, he's earned them 22 points with his goals in matches this season. They'd be, they'd be in a relegation battle if you take those goals away and nobody else replaced them. He didn't score last night, but his overall play was exceptional, and his and his pass for the equaliser was brilliant. So yeah, if he's if he stays fit as he always seems to and in form, then I think they'll they'll just about clinch a European place. Carries Tottenham on his back at times, Harry Kane, but it just doesn't ever seem to weigh him down. At just a sensational footballer, Steve Ryan Mason threw his hat into the ring this week by saying he's ready to take on the Spurs job on a permanent basis. How is that weird market shaping up this week? Yeah, well, at half-time, Dan, he was any price you want, basically, wasn't he, with them, um, with that poor first-half showing, as, as 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 Tim mentioned there. You know, however, you know they would they win at Liverpool, beat Palace, even put up a, a fight against Villa, and all of a sudden, you know, his odds will be tumbling. And I suppose the clamour will be there, give him the job, give him the job, etc. But do you I think like, Spurs but, fans will want more than that, surely? Yes, well, you'd like to think so, but you know he wins four games on the bounce, and then you know everything's all rosy in the garden again. You know how short-sighted, uh, particularly social media is these days. Half full, half empty, isn't it? There's no middle ground these days. It would be very early um, Gunnar Solskjaer that. Yeah, well, very much so. Yeah, but you wouldn't totally write it off, would you? Um, Nagelsmann is 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 clear favourite currently um, at seven to two. Uh, sorry, seven to four. I've been short Luis Enrique all, all the time. I, I really think um, Luis Enrique is a massive runner for this job. He's he's, he's second favourite at nine to two, and we're quite considerably shorter than 
that a lot of other firms. Vincent Company still attracting support at six to one. Arnie Slaughter eight. Brendan Rogers, you know, with the biggest price here, we we can be at, at ten. Postacoglu uh, is is an interesting one. There's been a little bit of support for him in, in, into ten to one, and Deserby, who's who's sixteen to one, the same price as Ryan Mason and Graham Potter. George, talking to managerial markets, it looks as though a former Spurs manager in Poch will be taking over at Chelsea. Is he the right man for the job? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I think he deserves immense credit and respect. I think the job that he did at Tottenham doesn't get enough credit and respect because he didn't win anything, which is, you know, seemingly the, the benchmark for success these days. Well, I say is the only benchmark for success. Obviously, it's very important. But, um, you know, the trajectory that he took Spurs on was so impressive. Obviously, you know, had a, a fairly difficult time at PSG, but but who doesn't? The one thing I think it's an unbelievable job to take at this stage. I know that might go against the grain of, of how people generally perceive Chelsea, but that maybe is why I think that. Where there seems to be this idea that you know it's a poison chalice and you don't get enough time, and expectations are so low. Then Maurizio Pochettino is coming into a club who aren't going to be playing uh, Champions League football next season, and we know. I mean, look what happened last time that happened with Chelsea with Antonio Conte coming in and winning the league. Um, it's a massive advantage, a huge advantage to not have to play Champions League football or European football midweek. He's coming into a squad where even though they're performing <clears throat> really poorly right now, you look at the players he's going to get to work with. You know, Reese James, 23 years old. Enzo Fernandez, 22 years old. Badashile, 22 years old. Kai Havertz at 23. Mason Mountain at 24, possibly, if he, if he stays. Noni Madueke, 21 years of age. Conor Gallagher, 23. Like, you know, even... Um, Carney Chukwemeka at 19. There cannot be a more exciting group of young players that a, that a head coach should come in and work with in world football right now. So for Poch, he's coming into a, a club with low expectations, an incredible young squad, owners who've shown they're prepared to spend. Obviously, they're, they're going to have to cut their cloth accordingly this summer and, and we're expecting exits, but there's enough deadwood in there that you'd, you'd anticipate they'll be able to do that. So um, is he the right man for the job? Possibly. Has he taken a very good job? Yeah, without a doubt. I think you raise a lot of valid points there. I think a lot of what you've said is, is very, very true, but it will also depend on can they shift some of the players that are surplus to, to requirements? Because if they can't, they're still around the place and then you, you're going to have the same problem. I think they will, though. Completely bloated squad. Well, there's enough. I, I think these a lot of these players who are there... They've got to get rid of it, about 10 players. Yeah, yeah, they? they do. I mean, they've, I they say. managed to shift Jorginho in, in January... You know, I think there are going to be takers for most of these guys. I, I know their stock has obviously fallen, but but not to the extent where they won't be able to shift them. But but they obviously have to recoup a lot of the money in order to to, to you know to to steer clear of the um, of the money police. But that's not Potch's problem really at, at this stage. I mean, I will say before I ask you this question, Tim, I actually disagree with the last thing that our producers put in, but. Before we move on from the European chat, we best touch on Wolves' game on Saturday. They head to Brighton after a defeat at Nottingham Forest. Is the Conference League now the best Brighton will be aiming for? I will say again, that's the producer guy's question, not mine. Well, I think this is this is a must-win game for Brighton against Wolves. I mean, it's, it's a good battle of two top six teams here, Dan. Brighton, obviously, top six if they win their games in hand. Wolves, <laughs> Wolves as we know. Um, top six in many metrics. <laughs> Wolves, as we know, top six since, since Christmas, uh, as everybody knows. It, it's, I mean, it's, cl- it's clearly a good time to play Brighton. They, I think they had a hangover from the FA Cup in midweek at Forest. A couple of players coming back this weekend. Looks like Evan Ferguson might be fit. Veltman as well has been a bit of a miss. The problem for Brighton is that they play five of the top six before the end of the season. And if they're coming to the end of a long season on the back of a really disappointing result in the FA Cup, you know, they need, they need to shake that out of the system pretty quickly. It will be a huge disappointment for them to miss out on Europe now. But if you look at the table, you know who does miss out? Is it Liverpool? Is it is it Villa? That look, Villa looked locked in to me. Is it Spurs? I, th- I, th- I think it probably is Brighton v Spurs for seventh on, on current form. But given Brighton's fixtures, like I said, they play five of the top six. They need to rebound from this FA Cup disappointment really quickly. And if they don't beat Wolves, then there'll be a drift of the top seven. I mean, they're four points off seventh already, albeit with those games in hand. But if they're sort of five, six points adrift after this weekend's games, then um, it's going to look like a real, like a long shot for Europe, which would be so disappointing. Right, then it's trivia time, everyone's favourite part of the show. And this week's question is, listen carefully, Steve Freeth, seven players have scored five or more goals in games between Liverpool and Tottenham in the Premier League era. Who are they? That's a hard question. Harry Kane, 
Harry Kane must be one. Oh, there is the boat from the blue. Uh, I've got su- a bit of a niche shout. Suarez? But I don't want to do it. Come on, come on, come on. We are professional. <laughs> That's wrong. Suarez is wrong. Rob, I was going to say Robbie Fowler. But it's, uh, uh... Oh, done. Such a sly guess that as well. Because we've got one wrong, I'm just going to throw this in there. I think Deli Ali might have done. Come on, come uh, on, come on. We are professional. Stephen Gerrard. Oh, there is the boat from the blue. Seven players who got loads more, haven't we? Um, Mo, Mo Salah. Yeah. Oh, there is the boat from the blue. Uh, Sergio Mane. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah. We are professional. Michael Owen. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, we are, we are professional. in big danger this week. Teddy Sheringham. Come on, come on, come on. We are professional. But are, are, so there, are there any really good players who play for both teams? Interesting angle from Tim there. Player that's played for both. It won't be, not, I'm not, not guessing, but obviously Redknapp's one, but he wouldn't have scored any. No, it won't be him. And it's not, and it's not, Neil, it's not Neil Ruddock either. <laughs> uh, say that, or, or John Scales. <laughs> 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 um... <laughs> Or Brad Friedel. Play for both. <laughs> Brad Friedel as well. Can we just took... That's, that's a new game. We're that game. We're better at that game. <laughs> it's a much better game. We're a lot better yeah. at that. Let's pick it up. Let's pick, we've already picked a five-a-side team virtually. It's uh, not even Leonardson. No. Oh, I'll tell you what. Excellent stuff, George. Oh, yeah. Did he play for Wolves? You might as well guess it because we've been rubbish anyway, Steph. Robbie Keane. Oh, there is yeah. the oh, boat from the blue. I think we've got we've got two more left to get. Firmino. Oh, there is Six. the boat from the blue. So one more, and we now know that they're not a current squad member. Who's scored goals for Spurs over time that isn't Kane? <laughs> Jermaine um, Defoe. Defoe, Son, Les, Les Ferdinand. Defoe. Is it Defoe? Come on, come on, come on. We are professional. We can't be Son. We are professional. We've got. A couple more guesses and then I'll read the answers. The answers have been sent to me. Right, Tim, shout of Les. Come on, come on, come on. We are professional. Do you see how I said that was Tim's shout, not mine? So it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had, we, had, we had Teddy as well, didn't yeah. we? So that's gone. Uh, I'm running out of players who I think have scored a lot of goals for both clubs. Right, we, we're, not, we're not doing it, are we? Let's read the answers then. So the list in full... Oh, we, 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 I don't think we'd have got this... So it's Mohamed Salah, Harry Kane, Robbie Fowler, Roberto Firmino, Steven Gerrard, Robbie Keane, and then the one that we didn't get, Steve McManaman. Ah, uh, shame. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gone with gone with him. I wouldn't have expected that. I mean, producers killed us. That again, ridiculously hard. They get harder <laughs> by, by the week. Now, since we got since we had a good week and got got them all right, he's punished us ever since. You're listening to the weekend preview from the Athletic Football Podcast. Right then, before we continue with the podcast, please remember that if you are going to have a bet this weekend, make sure that you do so responsibly. George, you've got some helpful tips on how to make sure that we do just that. Yeah, it's important to us that the listeners of this podcast are in control of their gambling. This is a podcast for those who are 18 years of age and older. Please ensure that you are only staking what you can afford to lose and do visit BeGambleAware.org for any information to ensure that you're gambling responsibly. Welcome back to the Athletic Football Podcast. We're now going to focus on the relegation battle with Brentford taking on Forest Saturday 3pm, Bournemouth against Leeds Sunday 2 o'clock and Leicester v Everton is the Monday night football. Steve, it's a big midweek of results at the bottom. Forest winning at home to Brighton, Leeds and Leicester drawing at Ellen Road and Everton being absolutely tanked by Newcastle. How are the relegation markets reacting to this week's results? Yeah, big losers, of course, were Southampton, who are now 1-25 to to be relegated and 12-1 to to stay in the Premier League. Dan Everton, of course, are also the big losers, who were even money last week and now into 1-2 to two second favourites to be relegated. I mean, this, that's the shortest price they've uh, 
they've um, been this season definitely. I know they were eight to fifteen when they had a losing run of nine uh, in twelve games, and then Dyche came in, didn't they? And they beat Arsenal, so they are second favourites. The big winners of the week were Nottingham Forest, who were two to nine. They're still odds on down, but only just that at eight to eleven. And then, of course, Leeds, after that Patrick Bamford late miss, they are 10 to 11. With Leicester City, who haven't really really moved a great deal, they're 6 to 4. It's 33 to 1 bar, so it's looking like uh, 3 from 5 currently. George, Forrest ended their 12-game winless run, coming from behind to beat Brighton on Wednesday. Brennan Johnson also missed a penalty in that game. Can you see any form of great escape being on there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I... I think they're still probably the likeliest third team to get relegated. The odds reflect that. They're 8-11 to 11 to get relegated. I think Leicester's um, revival under Dean Smith is fairly obvious. And they're the one team that sits beneath uh, Nottingham Forest um, who are in the relegation zone. Um, but this gives them a, a big chance. And Leeds' form is obviously heartening for them too. And Leeds are also odds on at 10-11. to 11. So um, a big win. And yeah, I, I think it's amazing what a win like that can do against opposition like Brighton. Um, just breathes a bit of belief into the camp. So, um, yeah, it gives them a fighting chance. And Tim, a penny for the thoughts of Patrick Bamford. Phil Hay told us last week how important this batch of games for Leeds were. And since then, they've lost at Fulham and drawn with Leicester. Is their visit to Bournemouth a must-win now? Bournemouth kind of feel safe as well, don't they? Yeah, Bamford, I think... Uh, most of us would have scored that, to be honest. M- maybe not Steve. Not on my, not on my right side. <laughs> not on my right. Yeah. On my left. On my left, I'd have, I'd have put it away. Steve too, would have been too right busy side. thinking about Aston Villa and Wolves and knocked it wide as well. <laughs> no, Villa, not Wolves. I don't care about Wolves. It's, um, it just shows you the fine margins. I, 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 do think, I do think they need to beat Bournemouth to stay up. I know um, that might sound a bit dramatic, but their next two games after this are Man City and Newcastle. Apart from Villa, those are the two teams in the, in the country you just... You don't want to play right now, <clears throat> and I can't. I just cannot see Leeds getting a point out of either of those two. So, if they only get a point at Bournemouth this weekend, then they're going to be in the relegation zone very quickly, and they'll only have two games left after that run of matches to salvage their Premier League status. And I don't know. Yeah, when they um, when they went on that great run recently, ten points from six games, and Gracia seemed to have um, made them more solid. They were harder to beat. They were more functional. And then they were 1-0 up at home to Crystal Palace. I was there for that one. And heading for 33, 32 points, they were 1-0 up. And then that, that capitulation in 20 minutes has just, has just transformed their season. And, and since then, they look they look pretty hopeless. So if they don't beat Bournemouth, I think you've got to say that there's a strong chance that they're, that they're gone, um, just purely on their next two games. So yeah, pretty desperate times for Leeds at the moment. And George, as for Leicester, it's good news, bad news. Jamie Vardy finally got back on the Premier League score sheet, but how costly could Kalichi Iganacho's injury prove to be because he's been on good form in recent weeks? Yeah, he has been. I mean, I do think that Vardy's first Premier League goal since the end of October um, is probably more significant here. Um, and in a way, that kind of softens the blow of Iganacho's injury. They've also got Patson Dacca, who... You know, whilst he hasn't necessarily lived up to expectations yet, is a, is a player who um, you know came with a big reputation, who can also play through the middle up top. So it's not like they're short of options. Um, and you know, I, I think that even though that is a concern, enough good has happened um, in the last couple of weeks at Leicester to, to certainly give them belief that they can get out of the the bottom three. Yeah, and Everton smashed by Newcastle, Steve. How perilous is it looking for them now? Fans leaving early in the game, which is a bit of a contrast to last season and the unity that was forged at Goodison Park. Feels like the fans have given up now, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there was so much energy that the fans gave to the players in the first half against Newcastle. And then it just, second half was just, yeah, capitulation really, wasn't it? Quite clearly down this Leicester City game away on, on, on Monday is absolutely huge. Look at the fixtures. I suppose they want Brighton to still have that FA Cup hangover with a load of games to come. They want Manchester City to be to be clear in the Premier League and be more preoccupied about uh, about their their second leg against Real Madrid. Obviously, they face Wolves, who are one of the best teams in the division right now, and they want to finish with with Bournemouth, who are you know hopefully they'll be they'll be safe by then. I'm just trying to look at the positives. Dan, to be fair to you, you've talked about Everton going down for a, for a long time this season. You know, and Southampton. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, but you know, it's swirling around the drain. Eventually, it it comes to it. I mean, George, George, what prize would you be Everton next season in the Championship to win it? Out of interest, yeah. at this moment in time, like probably eleven or two, six to one favourites. Yeah, I think that I, if you ask me now, I'd be about five to one. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, we're on the same ballpark. 
EFL George, Sheffield United have joined Burnley in securing promotion back to the Premier League. They'll both look to strengthen in the summer transfer window. But what are your initial thoughts on their Premier League chances? Yeah, it's interesting because um, Sheffield United under Paul Heckingbottom have a manager who is very good at the, the you know the pragmatic side of things. That's not to say he's a boring manager. Blades have been uh, scintillatingly good at times this season in a league where they have better players than, than a lot of the sides they play against but I think he will be suited to taking on a side in the Premier League who you know if needed he can shift the side of play a bit can kind of concede possession and, and set them up to be a team who can maybe play on the break a bit more the, the same you know Burnley are, are clearly the better side between the two and have been over the course of the season and have a lot of really exciting talent um, coming through there um, you know if you haven't watched a highlights reel of Manuel Benson's goals this season I would I would recommend that you do because I mean, he just does the same thing every time. Gets the ball on the right-hand side, cuts onto his left and fires into the top left-hand corner. He scored about 15 goals from 4xG this season. But I do worry a little bit that how Vincent Company's very expansive, very fluid style of play will translate when you're moving up a division. Um, There's also the uh, rumours around Company's future um, as to whether or not he might be a target for, for Tottenham. And, you know, if I was Vincent Company, I'd probably be a little bit concerned that with his aspirations, I'm sure, of managing at the very top level, do you necessarily want to take on a Burnley side after promotion and try and play your way out of, um, you know, out of a a relegation race? So I'm really excited to see both. Um, I think Burnley will be a a bigger price for relegation, but they may have more difficulty in terms of just projecting their current style of play onto next season, whereas I think for Sheffield United, it's going to be a struggle and 17th place will be a job well done. Um, but I, I see the the pragmatism in terms of what the manager brings to the table being a benefit to them. Steve, any early odds on the promoted sides for next season? Yeah, both odds on to go down. Burnley at four to five, Sheffield United at one to three. Incidentally, if Luton actually come up, they'll be about one to four to get relegated. Um, such is, I'm putting recency bias to one side here. This is a horrendous championship in my opinion, as someone who watches it week in, week out. Um, the quality in there is is absolutely bang average. So I'll be interested to see how these these two sides do. Congratulations for them to getting up there. Sheffield United, 20-1 to to finish in the top half like they did under um, under Wilder in that first season. But I think it's going to be a big ask for both sides. But hey, go and enjoy it, lads. You've done tremendously well this season. If it's a bad championship, it makes you wonder how bad West Bromwich Albion must be this time around. <laughs> horrific. It makes, yeah. really makes you absolutely it makes you horrific. So then those are our feature games to look out for this weekend, with this being how the weekend looks in full. Just the three games on Saturday, starting with Crystal Palace v West Ham at lunchtime, and then the two three o'clock kickoffs in association with Tim Spears at Brighton Wolves and Brentford Forest. There's then four 2pm kickoffs on Sunday, Manchester United v Aston Villa, Fulham Man City, Bournemouth against Leeds and Newcastle take on Southampton, with Liverpool versus Tottenham at 430 And the Monday night football is huge with Leicester taking on Everton, whilst Arsenal v Chelsea is on Tuesday. Steve, it's over to you for the six scores challenge. Okay, yeah, cash prizes has been, of course, the million quid and cash prizes for three, four and five correct scores from this week's games. George, Brentford versus Forest. One all. And Fulham versus Manchester City. Fulham are gone, aren't they? Uh, Nil three. Tim, uh, Brighton versus Wolves. Nil two. <laughs> uh, What's that <laughs> no, nothing. Uh, uh, Liverpool versus Spurs. Uh, two one Liverpool. I do pick all these games just for you, by the way, uh, Tim. Thank you. Um, Man United, Man United, Villa, Dan. I don't know why I'm laughing at Tim because I'm about to come in with a with a similar kind of prediction. Three one to Villa. Right, it's a bit early for drinking. Um, Newcastle versus Southampton. Oh, three one to Newcastle. Brilliant, guys. Thank you. That's us once again making absolutely no money this weekend. And that is it from us here at the Weekend Preview. The Athletic Football Podcast will be back on Monday following the weekend's action. But until then, enjoy your weekend, enjoy all the football, and thank you very much for listening. The Athletic.